This week's episode of Hockey Unfiltered is going to look a little bit different. There will be no intro music, no outro, no promotions other than the paid promotions that we're contractually obligated to do because we're going to be dealing with Team Canada and the allegations surrounding Hockey Canada. This week we have a panel of guests involving academics that all research this topic thoroughly and we think it will be a great conversation. However, there is a content warning as there always is surrounding this situation. And if you feel inundated and you don't feel like you can handle listening to this conversation, please feel free to recuse yourself. Without further ado, let's get to the show. Well, Dylan, I think we can say that we have the most uh, intelligent and uh, well-educated panel we've ever had on, uh, on Hockey Unfiltered, um, and uh, that's no reflection on either of us. It's the reflection of our guests, uh, and I'd like to introduce them right now, um, starting with uh, Teresa Fowler from Concordia University of Edmonton. Um, uh, Teresa Fowler is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education, and she is one of 26 academics who penned a letter, an open letter to the Canadian Heritage, Heritage Standing Committee uh, concerning sexual violence and misogyny in hockey. Uh, then we've got S- Sandy Kirby. Uh, if you've heard that name before, um, you're probably a rowing fan because uh, Dr. Sandy Kirby was a, a Canadian Olympian, uh, a Canadian Olympian rower uh, in the 1976 Olympics with the women's uh, rowing team. She is from the University of Winnipeg. She's a professor emerita of sociology and also one of the 26 academics who penned the open letter to the Canadian Heritage Committee. Uh, we've got Dr. Mac Ross from Western University, or as I like to call it, the University of Western Ontario. Um, Mac Ross is an assistant professor of kinesiology at Western and was also part of the 26 academics who penned the letter to, uh, to the Canadian Heritage Committee. And last but certainly not least, we have Greg Gilhooley, uh, who's an attorney in Toronto, uh, but uh, is also a sexual, sexual abuse survivor um, after being abused by uh, over a series of years by Graham James. Um, as I said, he's a lawyer in Toronto and the author of I Am Nobody, Confronting the Sexually Abusive Coach Who Stole My Life. Uh, mm-hmm. Welcome to everyone. Thank you for coming in and uh, weighing in on such a heady topic. Um, I think what I'd like to do first is um, maybe just go around the horn. Um, as, as we all know, that uh, Hockey Canada, Scott Smith uh, and, and others appeared before the Canadian Heritage Standing Committee looking into the alleged um, uh, sexual assault that occurred in 2018 involving the 2018 World Junior Team. Uh, just maybe, maybe just quickly we can go around the horn and, and see what everybody's impressions are of what they saw over the last couple of days. I'll start with you, uh, Teresa Fowler. What, uh, what did you, what was your big takeaway? Yeah. Thanks Ken, um, for having this conversation and thanks for having us on the show. I think, um, for me, yesterday's hearings were the biggest sort of takeaway per se, because the audaciousness of the people who were testifying, I think just really shone through especially when um, the fellow from BFI, BFL, I believe it was, was testifying and his lawyer was sitting beside him laughing. Mm. And who knows what he was laughing at, but he was laughing. And I don't think that was the correct place to be, you know, doing that. And it just took me back to where we were before last year with Kyle Beach and the Chicago um, hockey team. 
And I remember that moment when Kyle Beach, you know, revealed, you know, himself from moving from John Doe to here I am thinking, okay, good, this is it. How can we turn away from this now? And then Gary Bettman and his lawyer did their little Mm -hmm. performance and we know what happened. There's nothing, there's been no movement. So I think for me, it was, and I, one of the uh, parliamentarians did call out Scott Smith saying, you know, your attitude has changed, right? You know, so what, what's been the attitude change? And it isn't until funding is pulled, it isn't until these folks are called out that we start to see this attitude right. change. And so it seems forced to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I was, you know, we were talking before with our research team that we were cautiously optimistic. And I think this just reinstates the cautiousness. Okay. All right. Uh, Sandy Kirby, what was your takeaway from from what you've seen over the last couple of days and and from what you've seen from Hockey Canada in, in, in general? Yeah. Um, thanks for doing this. These are really important discussions. I think the pressure that's put on from the media sector um, onto sport is really important at this at this uh, sec- section of time, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same with the Graham James case. You know, the media played a very significant and positive role in making sure that those those stories came out and the case went forward. Uh, so I thank you for doing this. Um, my my overall opinion, uh, you know, I'm not as close as perhaps Teresa is to what's what's going on. Um, but I, I do know what I'm reading and I do know what I have read. And this is a continuing, for me, it's a continuing failure of governance mm-hmm. that, um, you know, we have, um, uh, we have, a, we have, we have people in the lead who don't seem to have integrity on these issues. They certainly are not trauma informed. They certainly have never talked with any, as far as I know, um, with any sensitivity towards, um, the victims of abuse. I don't hear any um, athlete um, athlete victim stories here. I don't hear the athlete voice being sought by Hockey Canada. Um, and, and I know Greg is here, and that's really important um, to have some mm-hmm. of that, although Greg is much more than just that. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it, it, um, it is stark in its absence of understanding of what uh, sexual abuse is, what sexual violence is, whatever the the result of this particular case, the fact that there's a a fund that's being used and that things can be done that are perhaps criminal that never get reported because hockey protects itself. It's not, you know, I know they're saying they're protecting the the victims, but they're not, they're protecting themselves. They're uh, protecting the leadership. And uh, for me, there's, I'm, I'm right with Sheldon Kennedy that you need to, you know, sweep that house clean and you need new leadership in there that gets it. You know, Teresa alluded to that as well around Gary Bettman. You know, who gets this? Right. You know, these, these, okay. these fellows don't get it. No. Right. Thank you, Sandy. Um, Greg Alhuli, I, I really, really wanted to have you as a part of this panel because um, you lived this. Um, you were sexually abused by Graham James. Uh, you came to a settlement with Hockey Canada. You went through basically this whole process that we're talking about. And as we found out yesterday... The money that was paid to you was, came out of the National Equity Fund that yeah. everybody is talking about. We didn't know that. I don't even think you knew that before yesterday. Um, so as, as an abuse survivor, as someone who's gone through this process, and uh, you, I know you were, you were tweeting and, and, and watching very, very closely yesterday. Yeah. Uh, what, what, were your, what were your takeaways? What were your impressions? Well, I, I, 
I feel sorry for the senior executives of Hockey Canada because at the outset, I want to make it clear, having lived within the hockey world, they're not evil people. They are people who find themselves in positions of authority and are in so far over their head with respect to what they're capable of. I mean, Scott Smith started out working in uh, a regional uh, hockey organization, teaching coaches how to run practices. And he's been in Hockey Canada for decades. I don't know about you guys, but when I saw Scott yesterday in, in committee giving testimony, he looked like a deer caught in the headlights. I mean, he, he did not belong there. He did not have the skill set to address these issues. And he's a, I'm sure he's a wonderful man and a wonderful father and just a great guy to, to have around. But, but he's, he's singularly unfit to run the organization and deal with these issues. And so that's the problem. And I, I guess what I get concerned about is when these awful issues come to the fore, uh, people jump all over these individuals and start ascribing really evil thoughts and planning and, and uh, motives to, to what's going on. And I just see it as, as a group of inept individuals trying their best to do right and get it wrong. If you think about this most recent situation, it's wonderful that Hockey Canada has a fund at its disposal to treat and, and help victims without having to go through insurers and lawyers. I mean, when Kyle, the Kyle Beach situation came out, I was at the forefront saying, NHL and Chicago Blackhawks, do not listen to your lawyers. Do not listen to your insurers. Do not do the legal thing. Do the morally right thing. And so a fund in place to allow Hockey Canada to deal with a victim in a situation where, you know, was there consent? Wasn't there consent? Was there a law broken? Is insurance triggered because a line has been crossed of a criminal nature? Don't need to get into that. Hockey Canada should be able to do the right thing. The problem mm -hmm. is Hockey Canada takes that good and, and steals, you know, defeat from the jaws of victory, to flip a phrase, because they stop their investigation. They don't get to the bottom of the truth. They right. think they're doing right by paying off the victim and making it hush-hush because then no one has to find out who the victim is and she's protected. And they just get that so fundamentally wrong that the good they were there trying to do to help this woman is obliterated by all of the bad that goes around it. So to, to sum up my, my, my rambling here, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, and unfortunately, I've been advocating for some time now that all, that entire senior leadership group and that entire board has to go. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thanks, Greg. And uh, Dr. Mac Ross, um, you've, uh, you've been watching, you've been tweeting, you've been, uh, you've been uh, monitoring this situation. Uh, you're very, uh, you know, you're very well-versed on it. What were, your, what were your thoughts about what you saw, what you've seen over the last couple of days, and what you've seen, how you've seen things unfold over the past month or so. Uh, I agree with with everybody here um, about that. There needs to be a complete overhaul of, of the senior executive. Um, I'm not sure hockey people are the ones to be running these kinds of organizations. Uh, you know, being involved in hockey doesn't really equip you with the skills, the moral and ethical. Uh, awareness to to run an organization of that size with that much money um, that is we know historically steeped in a very toxic culture mm -hmm. um, so I'm not sure who goes onto the board um, or who who becomes the, the next person at the helm 
Um, but I would love for it to be a more diverse board. I'd love for it to be, I'd love to see more women involved at the, the top end of Hockey Canada. Um, and I, I would love to see some people take some accountability, um, whether or not it's just pure negligence or, or there was something else going on uh, for, for how we got here. Why are we here? Why, you know, how did the 2018 incident uh, fly under the radar for so long? Who at Sport Canada is responsible for not making any effort to, to provide some transparency? Because um, this is starting to look like a far bigger problem than Hockey Canada. It's a whole yeah. chain of Sport Canada, sport across the country. Uh, and we know that with gymnastics, bobsleigh, boxing, all of them are having abuse and harassment issues. So that there's there's not much accountability to go around anywhere. And when you, you tie nationalism uh, and, and the particularly violent nature of hockey uh, up in all of that, uh, it's just a particularly uh, fertile ground for bad things to happen mm-hmm. um, where people have more privilege than, say, a boxer would or, yep. you know, a rugby player would. Um, it's, it's, it's awful and... Uh, I hope they do something meaningful, substantial, um, and long-lasting to try to address it. But Mac, yeah, I, is, that, I, is that true, Mac? I mean, obviously hockey has a problem, but you know, Graham James, for example, was a teacher too, and yeah. the school board that employed Graham James to this day refuses to accept responsibility for a trustee who actually knew that Graham was going after kids and allowing Graham to teach. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, hockey's a violent sport. But the uh, the amount of sexual abuse that goes on within the swimming world, for example, is unbelievable. And there's there's absolutely no contact in swimming. And so I guess, like, I hear what you're saying about hockey and its violence and the culture of that. But this is a systemic societal issue that crops up everywhere. It crops up in the financial world. It crops up whenever you've got a community group going together. It crops up within symphonies. Uh, the problem we have in the hockey world is that there is a bright light and cameras shone upon the hockey world. But I put it to you that these problems exist everywhere. Mm-hmm. I, I would argue that uh, although probably to some degree you're right, um, you know, we live in a, in, a, in a society that still is struggling for equality across the board. But uh, in other sports, we're not seeing the kind of gang um, sexual assaults that we see in hockey. No. And and I am working on something that can kind of put that out there in a more visual way. It's easy to list stuff, but when you see yeah. it represented on a map, uh, it's a little bit different. So, uh, and But to your point about society, about, about our problems in Canada as a people, uh, as a system, um, when people come forward, uh, whether it's from hockey or anywhere else, they don't have a very good chance of finding justice. Um, we don't have a system in place that really allows for sexual assault um, accusers, survivors, to to seek justice in a way that isn't going to re-traumatize them or traumatize them further. Um, so when you look through the hockey cases, there's cases from Barry. there's cases from Windsor, there's cases... Um, from up in the Sioux, there's cases everywhere 
Um, and across Canada, in, in Saskatoon, in Swift Current, um, over in British Columbia, mm-hmm. um, of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. I mean, we could start listing them. There yeah. are cases <laughs> of women coming forward, um, and either the charges get dropped um, yeah. because the, the Crown feels like they, they can't reasonably expect to get a, a to be able to prosecute and get a conviction, um, or in some cases. There was an instance in Saskatchewan where they actually tried to put the victim on trial and make her be charged with mischief for accusing these boys because these boys couldn't possibly have done this. Sure, but that that happens in sexual assault instances of all types across the country uh, every day of the week. Whenever a sexual assault case comes up, that's the first line of defense, right, is put the put the victim on trial. So that that's that's not a hockey-specific situation. A- absolutely. You know, I, I'm not here to defend the game of hockey, but I'm certainly not here to say that hockey alone stands apart in any material way. And I'll, I'll okay. fight until the, the end of the day that th- this, this focus on hockey is because of hockey's place in society. But the sexual assault is happening across the board. And in many ways, because the light has been shone within the world of hockey – there actually is more likelihood of uh, a victim coming forward now, having seen us come forward. And look, I'm more than passingly familiar with how the justice system doesn't serve victims of sexual assault well. You know, I, I've, I, you guys have studied it. I've lived it and experienced it and been in the meetings with the crowns and had to sit there and, and, and go through all of that. So, you know, if anyone has any questions about how the system works, feel free to pick up the phone and call me. Um, uh, Absolutely. There is a problem with the hockey culture and there is a problem with the the young boys who are pulled from their families and don't get the proper uh, familial raising of, of cultural norms and values when they leave home at 13, 14, 15 and 16 to effectively be raised by the game of hockey and have the hockey culture instilled in them and not uh, fundamental family values. Uh, that, that's a real problem. But that's that's happening in a lot of different places and areas too that we just don't hear about because it's not hockey. Yeah, okay. well, maybe I maybe I could step in. You know, there's there's, there's there's quite a lot of information out there. You know, three of us are researchers here. There's a lot of information out out there about prevalence and about what kind of abuse happens. And um, in the Canadian story, hockey figures uh, loudly in that uh, always the front runner. But you only remember, in the field of sexual assault, you only hear about victims who come forward. I, I understand. I understand that, Greg. But in, this, in, the, in, in the surveys that have been done, they're not looking at those who come forward. They're looking at who has experienced what, where. So whether you, only, you only hear about the people who come forward. You're surveying. And, and I've, I've had arguments with academics uh, in numerous instances about this. Uh, and and I'll put my cards up front right now. The data in this field is garbage because you don't have access to fact. You have access to self-reported fact, and that's it. You're right. You're right. And in prevalence data, that's all you can get. You can ask people what they have or have not experienced. Right. So you're right there. It doesn't mean it's garbage, please. I've looked at stuff. No, all no. It, 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 it does. It does. I've looked at stuff all over the world. The same patterns appear across the world using different methodologies. Hockey figures large here, 
when you look at England, it's football. It's the, the as you say, the major sport that's attracting the most attention. Right. Um, in Norway, you get a completely different story because everything gets reported, whether the athlete wants to come forward or not. So they have a different system. Their facts and figures look about the same. So it is about the big sports that, that the light gets shot, shot on, absolutely. Which okay. skews the data, right? And that skews the data. Well, you could say it skews the data. I would argue that we need we we always need more data. The part the part of the data that I am interested in is we don't have data from huge parts of the world. And we don't have huge parts of the voice. You know? We don't have data from huge segments of, of our Canadian society too. Okay, that, everybody. All right, everybody. I want to I want to stay on 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 topic here. It, that is a very worthy conversation and and that. But I do want to stay on topic here, and and I want to start. Uh, with you, Teresa Fowler, uh, you recently wrote a piece along with um, Dr. Shannon Moore of the University of Manitoba and Tim Skuse of Brandon University, and it was called Showered in Sexism, Hockey Culture Needs a Reckoning. Uh, you say in that piece that, you know, Tom Rennie appeared before the Heritage Committee on June 20th and said that the, the alleged incident committed by members of Canada's 27 1818 U20 men's world junior team was quote unquote unacceptable and incompatible with Hockey Canada's values and expectations. And then you write, we disagree. This is entirely on brand. The assault, the alleged assault, the impulse to cover it up, and the broader community's attempt to label this as an isolated incident. This is part of hockey's culture. And you've taught, you actually referenced some studies that you've done, and you talked to to some uh, some participants about. The culture of silence that exists and and you and the, and this this young man says the this stuff happens in the dressing room what happens in there sort of stays in there for the most part and here's the kicker well on good teams it stays there um yeah. whether it's you whether it's who you're hooking up with if you get sent pictures from some girl everyone sees them so it stays in the dressing room and here's the other kicker and it's a team builder <laughs> it, it, it's a team builder. So, so somebody is talking here about how not only is accepted, not only is it is it is it something that is prevalent. It's actually ingrained in the culture of building a team. So, mm-hmm. I, like it escapes me how showing lewd pictures of someone that you've been with is going to make you want to go in the corner and dig a puck out <laughs> more ardently than you would otherwise would. That escapes me, but. Um, there's some very, very serious, uh, you know, sort of cultural things. And, and what I want to talk to you, Teresa Fowler is, is, is about sort of the, how it's ingrained in the culture and, and, and why, why is that happening? Why, why is that happening? And in, in, I know what happens in other sports. I know what happens in other areas of society, but it's happening in hockey. And I mean, I, I've, Victor Hedman lived alone when he was 15 years old. I mean, in Sweden and, and Switzerland and, and Finland, boys are sent away at an early age and they go live on their own. They don't even live with billets. They live by themselves. And we, I, I don't know. I don't hear of these things happening there. What's going on? Yeah, no, thanks, Ken. And, and I want to first, you know, thank our participants. So our research study that you referenced, we, um, Tim, Shannon, and I, we interviewed 21 current and retired professional elite hockey players. 
And it's important, the age range, because they age between 20 and 50. So it speaks to the generational entrenchment of sexism um, with respect to this conversation in hockey culture. And it also speaks to Greg's point about data, right? Like our, our study was looking for men who were actively resisting hypermasculinity. And when we were interviewing players, we heard honestly so many stories. Like you ask, how, how is it inspiring to look at lewd pictures and then go play ice? Well, it's inspiring because some of the coaches would actually paint pubic hairs around the post of the net and tell the players to hit it hard like your girlfriend. So so it, sexism is so entrenched within the culture. When you think about through that lens, it kind of makes sense that looking at your girlfriend's pictures is a team building activity. And, you know, you spoke to the point about, um, you know, grooming and young players. And that's sort of where, you know, Mac's point about the nationalism of the sport all the players we interviewed all started skating at the age of two, three, four. They all had their, you know, depending on their age, the people they were looking up to. So they're really ingrained already in this sport, right? And then also to Greg's point about schools, schools also are implicated in this. And I was a K-12 teacher. I had hockey players, you know, we did whatever we could to help them graduate school and they never set foot in the building. And yet when they would come into the building, staff would bring tools. Here, can you sign this for me? And I'm like, what are you doing? These are boys. You know, like, let's not put them on any more pedestals. And, you know, so so you come to this place where morally, you know, morals were mentioned, that within the culture of hockey, which is insular, which is predominantly white, um, we're talking about men's ice hockey, so it's definitely masculine. And in schools, they're put in a bubble, right? They're put in a privileged bubble. So they're not experiencing diversity. They're not experiencing, you know, no, it's not okay that you share my picture. Oh, I sent that to you, period, right? You know, so they're not experiencing those conversations outside of their peer groups. So when they then start playing, and where else in the world do you, can you punch someone in the face and not get charged, right? And then you come off the ice, so you just figure, oh, the same behaviors. You know, I'm on a pedestal with my community. I'm not going to get charged for things. So sure, why not? Let's, you know, let's enter into a room, you know. And, and again, yes, this is across society. Yes, this is in every sort of, you know, culture, sporting. But right now we're asking you to look at hockey, Right. Don't turn away from this right now, because right. right now, Hockey Canada is facing a reckoning. And it's not just Hockey Canada. Like, we know that. But right now, we need to hold Hockey Canada to account. We need leadership change because we need that message to then spill out into these other areas to say it is not OK to treat women like this. And it's not OK to also groom players like this. I did a study um, with a U18 team on their experiences in schools, right? So again, you know, what's it like to be, because obviously I'm not a, a man, I'm not a hockey player, I can't skate, right? Um, so what's it like to be a hockey player in schools? And I, as a parent of four boys, well, they're all men now, I know that conversations are hard. 
So I had the, the men in my study take pictures of their feelings, right? How are you feeling in school today? And, and, you know, you would think that these boys who are privileged, who are up there, would share these, you know, really inspirational pictures. But I got pictures of trash cans, right? I got pictures of cough syrup. Oh, yeah. I felt yeah. sick. And that's the part that I really hope we get to have a conversation about eventually once this is through, yeah. is the impact on men's mental health. Right. You're told to be this type of individual and society loves this type of individual. And that's why I think fans are also complicit in this. You know, what are you cheering? What are you rewarding? And what is that doing to men? You know, Corey Hirsch wrote a real poignant story in the Players Tribune about his, um, you know, experiences with mental health. And we need to hear more of that because when we're talking about morals, we are grooming these young men and boys to have a skewed sense of what it means to be a man, right? And a lot of the folks in our study talked about when they left hockey, that's when they did the work. That's when they worked with counselors. That's when they worked with their partners to become the person who they originally were. And so it's, it's much bigger. And again, that's, I'll pause there because now I'm rambling. Okay. Sandy Kirby, I saw you had your hand up. You, yeah, you want to answer that? Yeah, I just want to ask a question. I've been doing a, been part of some work looking at human rights and looking at, you know, young athletes and um, in across sports. And, um, you know, it's it's just beginning work. But young athletes don't know their rights uh, in general. I mean, they're children, right? They, they have rights. We have a UN mm -hmm. Convention on the Rights of the Child. But they don't know what they are. And if they do know what they are, at least to some degree, um, they don't believe they can act on them. So here's the question. So, so Greg, did you have any any education along the way that taught you that you deserved respect, that you deserve to have supervision, that you deserve to have people who cared for you and stood in your camp when things went wrong? Did no, you no and, 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 but, but Sandy, again, my point, and look, I, I've been advocating for... The, the leadership of Hockey Canada to go. I've been advocating that hockey culture is toxic and all of this. So, so, so please take all of that as given. When I just push yep. back a little bit here, the kid who is forced to practice piano two hours a day, the kid who is forced to go to gymnastics class and ballet class and golf, Tiger Woods wasn't informed of his... Uh, I, I, none of us were. It's a societal issue. No kids understand that they have rights. And, and even if they did... Each and every one of us, be it in hockey, football, golf, symphony, math Olympics, all of that stuff, you know, who are, are just pushed to, to the nth degree by parents or find themselves in a situation where they're trying to succeed with abusive coaches or whatever. Even if we knew that we had rights as children, all that we have are the doors in front of us. And we're not equipped at that time to say, you know what? I don't want to go that way. I want to go this way. When I'm seven years old, I, I can guarantee you I had no ability to say, hey, I would rather uh, start training to be a physicist rather than a hockey player or a baseball player or a football player. And, and what I did know, though, is that if I rocked the boat at any stage within whatever group I was participating in, my chances were going to be diminished. I had that. Uh, and I think all of us do, right? That uh, and, and even as I confront all of you, you know, during this podcast, I am 
very aware that if I push back in a direction you don't want me pushing, I'm not likely to ever talk to any of you again. Um, and, and, and so that's the extent of it when you're a child, right? Is yeah. Yeah. Do you have rights or not? The, the answer really is it doesn't matter because even if you knew that you had rights, you couldn't exercise them. Right. Uh, Mac, what, uh, do you want to weigh in on this at all? Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I still think hockey... I still think it's it's just a little bit different than a lot of other sports um, in Canada, uh, just because of the way it does get tied up and in, into knots around uh, our national identity. I keep on harping on that. I know. Um, I disagree. I know. Um, <laughs> but um, I think we just see more of it, right? I don't think it's different. Um, well, that that's a good point too. Um, yeah, but the, the, back to your point, though, Greg, as well, like uh, about the social issues that are kind of at the foundation of all of this, it does go beyond hockey, absolutely. Um, and it does it does appear in other sports. And I think whether or not it's more prevalent in hockey or not isn't – it's an important discussion to have, obviously, uh, for at the, that sport level um, or at the individual sports level. But also I think we do need to be talking about – um, the, the broader treatment uh, of women and children in our society um, mm-hmm. here in Canada because there's something that allows things like this to unfold. Not just not just the act itself, but everything that went on around it, like a fundamental misunderstanding of how to, to engage with these kinds of issues. Um, because I don't think... In any sport I've been in, and I've boxed, I've played hockey, I've played soccer, I never really felt like a coach was well prepared uh, to handle a crisis of this magnitude Mm -hmm. or that, you know, any of the administrators a higher up at, you know, Hockey Nova Scotia or whatever um, were equipped to handle this kind of crisis. Um, so maybe that means having somebody like Greg who has a legal, a legal background, um, and make that, make that something you have to have to be in a leadership position, like change the qualifications around a little bit. Um, do you know that some of the worst sexual assault happens within major law firms? I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, Sorry, can I just add one? Yeah, one very quickly, very quickly. Chris. Yeah, one, one part, because it, it speaks to sort of the, you know, what we're trying to say here, that hockey has its own sort of entity. If we look back to the response for the Humboldt Broncos, right, which was a horrible tragedy. One of those students was one of my students. But the outpouring of support, there was a GoFundMe page that raised $4 million. And the media also, when Nora Leo called out that this is misogyny, this is whiteness, this is she got lambasted. And I wonder if, you know, you don't want another tragedy, but there have been other tragedies that haven't seen that sort of outpouring of sport. And I remember I was traveling at the time. I was in Europe and people were wearing Humboldt jerseys. And you know, right. so I think that really speaks to why um, yep. hockey right now is what we need to focus on. Yeah, good point. Um, Mac Ross, I want to go to you now um, with a question. Um, part of what people have talked about is is sort of the win at all costs mentality. Mm. 
that has been pervasive. Uh, and again, I, I mean, hockey is my world. Uh, so I don't, I don't have a lot of experience outside of that. So I, I, I do want to keep it confined to hockey because that's what we're talking about. It's okay. hockey yeah. unfiltered. Um, so, I, you know, I mean, the win at all costs attitude. We learned yesterday in the, in the hearings that Hockey Canada executives are given bonuses based on the medals they win in international, their, their teams win in international tournaments. Um, to me, that's ludicrous. First of all, just from a perspective that can <coughs> excuse me, Canada has more rinks, more players, more coaches, more resources, m- more everything than every other country. And we're awarding well-paid executives for winning tournaments that they should be winning anyways, or, or enter as a, as a very clear favorite in a lot of them. Um, that doesn't make any sense to me, nor does it make sense to, 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 you know, to, to reward this like like I, I think you know from from now on maybe you want to give bonuses for you know growing the game uh, re- better registration numbers more diversity uh, you know people who come up with creative programming healthy you know, that, athletes yeah healthy athletes yeah or crazy crazy thought let's pay the kids let's pay the teenagers more than 50 bucks a week let's do that but anyways that's that's a whole other tangent but but mac i want to get back to this win at all costs and i'm wondering you know from from your expertise and what you know how much of that uh permeates into what we're seeing happening off the ice with some of these people that's really hard to say um that's uh that'd be complete conjecture but uh i I can try um I think uh, the win at all costs uh, mentality within elite sport and elite hockey, um, that, that stems from the way we kind of split up sport in Canada. Um, so we do have relationships, actual policy documents and things like that, that kind of lay out how the, the municipalities, provinces and the national level federation should interact. Uh, you know, there should be input uh, going all around, but we still we still definitely spend a lot of money on a few people at the higher end of sport. Uh, no matter, you know, we say we talk about long-term athlete development, sport for life, those kinds of things uh, through our sports system. And that applies to hockey too. Um, I don't think in practice, that's really what we're doing. Uh, right. I think that's what we like to say because it helps to pacify some of the critics of, of sport. Um, but at the end of the day, we're very focused on competition and people are raised from, you know, if they want to be an elite athlete, winning is everything. Um, you're not going to get to be at the very top end. You know, we called our our fundraising efforts for the 2010 Vancouver Olympics own the podium. podium yeah. um, that's what the priority was. Uh, and then later on, they tried to talk about, you know, the legacy of transportation and things like that but that's not really what it was about um so there there is a whole and i don't know how we get out of that i've been talking to a lot of people about that um because there's a global issue there too we're tied into a global sports system that we have to kind of go with if we want to be a part of it i mean you could tell people that winning doesn't matter and send them to the olympics that's going to be a hard sell because when you get there that's what that's the whole thing that that's yeah. what it's about yeah. um so it, it's uh th- we've done sport this way for 150 years at the very least uh so to to break out of this the culture we have now of around winning around uh competition uh nation states competing against each other at the global stage 
that's a monumental task to, to <laughs> tackle. And I'm not sure you can at this point, unless there's some kind of cataclysmic upheaval in the world. Yeah, I've, I've always thought that, you know, that it's, it's the, the attitude that a lot of people have is it's, yeah, that's good for everybody else, but not for me. Like, you know, we talk about spring and summer hockey and mm. it's playing hockey 12 months a year. And, and you hear people say, yeah, you know, these kids, they should be taking their summers off and everything. But when you're a parent of an elite hockey player and a coach is telling you that you have to have your kid playing summer hockey in order for him to him or her to advance, uh, you're, you're, you're going to do that, <laughs> you know, um, that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's interesting. Um, anybody else have any thoughts on the, the whole sort of winning winning at all costs culture? Yeah, I'll go. I'll start with Sandy and then I'll go to Greg. Yeah, um, I don't dichotomize them. I, I think... Um you know, winning when you're, um, as some of our top athletes have shown recently, when you're not mentally well or when you're abused or when you think poorly of yourself or when you're ill, physically ill, or, or any of those things, um, they're not conducive to, to producing your best performance. I think our right. best performances, our most competitive athletes, will be those who think highly of themselves, who feel welcomed, who feel respected, who physically feel capable, and who mentally feel well and who feel supported by the sport they're in, however they get there. Now, we don't, we don't, we say, we separate the two and we say, well, if you're winning, you must, you must be doing well. And what we want is healthy athletes doing well. So mm -hmm. I would put those two together firmly and, and change the rhetoric on that. Okay. Greg? With respect to that comment, I guess I would just say, you know, Lance Armstrong kind of is the antithesis of that, right? He was a, a twisted, awful human being, self-loathing and whatever, who, who used that to drive. I, I think it depends on the individual. But, you know, circling back to Hockey Canada, to me, Hockey Canada is a perverse organization because the most attention is given to the elite national junior hockey team. The most money within Hockey Canada is raised by the national junior hockey teams. Those are simply feeders to the NHL. And Hockey Canada, it should be a lot of things, but I don't think it should be in the business of building professional hockey players for the National Hockey League. I don't believe we as taxpayers should be funding the development of pro hockey players. Let the National Hockey League do that. The, in my mind, Hockey Canada should be about participation. And Ken, as I wrote yesterday, and you touched on in terms of how should Hockey Canada executives be bonused, they should be bonused on growing the membership within hockey generally. They right. should be bonused upon increased membership uh, within previously unrepresented, unparticipating groups to grow the game. And they should be bonused on the, 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 the lack of incidences like this that come out. And if something like this comes out during a year, guess what? There are no bonuses paid to senior executives. Hockey Canada should be about building better citizens, using the game of hockey as a tool to make us a better country giving kids places to play and learn and grow. Hockey Canada shouldn't be bonusing senior executives on building professional hockey players to earn them money on their way to earning money. <laughs> That's, That's true. That's true. Um, Dylan, do we want to take a quick break here? Yeah, so we're going to have to take a quick break uh, to go to commercial, but please, if you're listening, stick around. Um, I think, uh, speak for everybody listening, this has been some very fascinating discourse taking place. The action never ends at DraftKings Sportsbook, especially this summer. With tons of ways to bet on all your favorite sports, you can fuel your fandom and feel the heat of the season like never before. Plus, right now, DraftKings Sportsbook is giving new customers a risk-free bet up to $1,000. That's right. Make your first bet up to $1,000, and if it doesn't win, you'll get another shot to cash in. 
You can throw down on all the major action for baseball, golf, MMA, and more. Plus, with same-game parlays, spreads, money lines, over-unders, and props, your betting options feel endless. Best of all, DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. You can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code THPN, make your first deposit, and get a risk-free bet up to $1,000. That's promo code THPN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Uh, Welcome back, everyone. Um, We've had a very interesting and fascinating conversation about uh, the Hockey Canada situation. Uh, Greg, I want to go to you uh, because I feel like you haven't had a chance to express your opinion enough yet. So um, (laughs) so I I, want to go to you. And as I said off the top, Greg Greg O'Hooley, you live this. You lived through it. You, you, um, you were affected by it, um, and and you're and you're also a trained corporate lawyer. Uh, so you bring a lot to the table here, uh, a, a, an awful lot to the table here. And what I want to ask you is, if you were Glenn McCurdy or Scott Smith or Tom Rennie, uh, the morning of June nineteenth. 2018 you get a call about this yeah. how how would you have handled it uh, like it, it is an absolute slam dunk that the second you hear of anything touching on anything like this your first call is instantly to the police yep and yeah. and and for the life of me you know when the Kyle Beach situation came up everyone started focusing on the men who were in the meeting when the information was presented and what did they do. And they chose to protect the Blackhawks and their pursuit to the Stanley Cup. And we quickly recognized that the fundamental institutional problem at play within the Blackhawks organization, and quite frankly, likely within every hockey, every sport organization across the country, is people look inward for self-preservation first and they don't necessarily think of doing the right thing first. And unless the group is empowered, the members within the group are empowered to do the right thing and not look up the chain to protect their own seat at the table so that they they hope to get the invitation the next time, there's a fundamental problem, right? The, The organization has to instill as its culture, and that's why we're, we're talking about hockey culture right now, specifically in this ho- hockey setting, but uh, I talk about societal culture generally too. Everyone has to be empowered to do the right thing and not fear repercussions from mm-hmm. doing the mm-hmm. right thing. Yet, got to be able to call. And Glenn McCurdy testified that even after being shown that, that uh, showing us that his first call was to retain counsel. The first thing counsel advises him is you got to go to the police. So his second call isn't to the police. His second call is to upper management, who then I guess okay, Glenn going to the police with his third call. That and was so- that was that one blew me away. That that I and I'm sure everyone else, okay. like Greg and 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 you in particular. I I mean you know no I yeah I do want to do that, but I have to send it up the food chain first. And here's the 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 director of risk management and insurance saying this. So uh, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry that I interrupted, Greg. Go no, ahead. no, I was just going to say, look, 
And so we're talking about Hockey Canada. Remember, I had one-on-one dealings with Glenn McCurdy for the better part of a year. And after my situation was resolved with Hockey Canada, and look, full marks, wonderful that Hockey Canada reached out to me. I wasn't in the midst of suing them. Great, they do me a solid. This is fantastic. But then the execution is atrocious. But at the end of the day, I, I see how they mishandled my circumstance, how they were only focused on processing me and getting out of the way and not going after other people who were tangential that they knew about to, to the Graham suit, all of that stuff, mishandling grotesquely, uh, not dealing with me as a victim, not pro- just a mess. I threw my hand up and I said, hey, you know, I'm more than willing to volunteer and help you guys deal. And it, it, it was guys, right? There are no women to be seen in, in processing this and yeah, yeah. disgusting in and of itself. Um, I said, I'm willing to help you guys. The minute my NDA was signed, I never heard from Hockey Canada again. Telling, telling, very telling. All right, well, let's go around. I mean, I, I, I know that uh, Greg probably has a, a, a better sort of uh, personal uh, experience, not a better personal experience. That was wonderful. A more, a, more, uh, a more tangible personal experience. But does anybody else want to weigh in on, on how you might have handled this, how it could have been better handled from the get-go? Well, I think one of the things that Hockey Canada should learn, and Greg actually pointed it out to them, is that they need um, they need athlete victims as part of their process. From the minute a complaint comes forward, there has to be athletes athletes on on site. Athletes have to be part of the solution. They can be part of research and they can be part of policy making, but they also should be part of the reporting process right through long legs all the way through to remedy, which is years and years out for some. Okay. So, you know, yep. kudos to Greg for raising it. Uh, too bad for hockey for not recognizing the gift you were going to give them. Right. Mac, what uh, what thoughts do you have on that? Oh, I would just echo what Greg said, honestly. Um, yeah. As soon as you find out, you call the police. Um, just the, the runaround associated with the whole thing, uh, that really makes your stomach sink. Um, and, and that's... Part of the reason why I, I want to see such wide, wide-ranging resignations, um, because it, it's not just one person. It was, it was an organizational failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Teresa, any thoughts, sir? Yeah, no. I would same as the group. First call would be to the police um, to make sure that it had been reported. You know, as an educator. We are required under law, we have a duty to report. We have a duty to report if someone's being harmed, if they're going to harm someone, or I can't remember the other one. I don't know, maybe Greg, if you remember, but there's three. And and that would fall within a duty to report. So again, why are they not reporting these things is the bigger question. And it comes back to the conversation we had before the break, the win at all costs, right? Do I report? and risk losing, you know, maybe one of my top players. And why don't we just hold off? We'll wait because nothing's going to happen until after the playoffs, right? So definitely needs to be reported. What was interesting in this instance with Glenn McCurdy is that when he was giving his testimony, he said, when I called the police, they were abrupt. And he referred to them as as female police officers, right? He went out of his way to say that he was dealing with female police officers and and said that they, they were, you know, somewhat abrupt with him. And, and, Reading between the lines, they were pissed off because he hadn't gone immediately to the police. And absolutely they were going to be abrupt with him because he was a dick. (laughs) (laughs) Don't hold back, Greg. (laughs) Tell us what you really think. 
Yeah, no, it's uh, it, that's 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 a good observation. Um, lastly, I want to go to uh, Sandy Kirby. You're you are an advocate and and uh, a longtime advocate and a a very very well researched expert on gender based violence. One of the things that struck me yesterday in Barry Lorenzetti's testimony, Barry Lorenzetti was the uh, insurance broker with BFL Canada. They would bring up situations and what and and more than once he said, oh, oh, "Okay, I need to I need to be clear here. Are we talking about the 2018 incident? Are we talking about the 2003 incident or are we talking about the Dan Carcillo uh, abuse situation and and he had to he had to make that clarification several times with people who were questioning him which i found telling and sad (laughs) but i wanted to talk to you sandy about how this is not just one-offs this is not just bad apples and it's not just man on woman sexual violence here there it strikes me that with you know a lot of the hazing things that we've seen in the past and and that there's a lot of homoeroticism involved um for whatever reason um i talked to a, a guy who played in the nhl and and played junior hockey and he said yeah he said he kept wondering why they always wanted him to take his clothes off why you know why why did he have to be naked all the time when he did stuff like this and and to me i, I just want to drill down a little more on that sandy kirby and and talk a bit about a it's it's certainly not as as Teresa fowler wrote it's it's not the exception it is part of hockey culture and two the fact that it you know there's it, it goes across all genders here, doesn't it? Um, it does. Um, you know, it was um, when it was seen, like before the Graham James case, we had the Maple Leaf Garden scandal. And before that, there was one in Quebec. And so so we've, yeah. we've had sort of, we're, we're shocked and appalled, and then we're quiet for a couple of years. And then we're shocked and appalled, and then we're quiet for a couple of it goes. It's a cycle like that. Yeah. Um, the ones that, that happened earlier, um, with uh, older men to, to younger women attracted almost no media attention at all. It right. was the Graham James case that broke out the whole question of men abusing uh, boys. Our research had said that this was going to happen because when we asked our high-performance athletes what, the, what they were afraid of, the men, their number one thing they were afraid of was child sexual abuse. And when we crossed it over with did they have children, they didn't have children yet. Uh. So we, we, we interpreted that as there's a huge um, uh, body of, uh, of boys uh, and young men who are unable to report what's happening to them. Um, so, so Graham James's defense, well, he pled guilty, but then he said, you know, I was in love with him. You know, so he, he, he kind of used, I am a gay man as an excuse for his sexual violence. Um, mm. Yeah, you know, which didn't go over very well. You know, a pedophile is a pedophile is a pedophile in my book. My book. Right. Um, so when we look at the numbers, I'm sorry, Greg. I have research. I can talk about numbers here. When we talk about <laughs> the numbers, um, about ninety percent of all abuse that we had been able to capture up until maybe about ten years ago was a, about older men and, and younger women. And the other 10% was rough, roughly split between older men, younger men, um, older women, y- younger men, and 
and so on, right? That last 10%. In the last 10 years, there's been a whole body of work that has revealed the peer abuse. Um, boys against boys, boys against girls, girls against boys. Um, whether you call it hazing or initiation or hookups gone bad or whatever it is, there's a lot of um, uh, lateral abuse that's going on. And for me, that's a big signal about, you know, teaching athletes about good behavior, about restraint, about uh, transparency, about being good people and the importance of being the best person you know how to be when you play sport. Not the worst person you know how to be, the best person you know how to be when you play ah, sport. Okay. So that's roughly kind of what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, is it across all sports? Yes. Hockey, I said, is you know is the number one. The next is gymnastics in terms of the public um, public information that we have available. And then there's a smattering of other sm- sports, roughly equal to or proportional to what we see in the provincial populations. Right. So it's across the country. It's across mm-hmm. all sports. But hockey is number one. Okay, Greg. Uh, yeah, and then I'll go to you, Teresa, after that. But Greg, uh, you know, Sandy talked an awful lot about the Graham James situation, which you were involved in. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, look, the reason I say that the data is garbage, and I don't mean to offend anyone, but remember, for three decades, I didn't show up in anyone's data, and to this day, seven people show up with respect to Graham James in the data not the between 75 and 125 that I've been able to figure out in my head who were likely a part of the data. Uh, My sister uh, swam on the national team, uh, and in her local team in Winnipeg, the swim coach, by her calculation, had sex with 12 of the girls on the team, none of whom ever reported. The data, let me not use garbage, the data is not reflective of the reality. You extend the data as best as possible. You can try to model around it. I was an economics major at Princeton and did all my graphing and all my this and all my that. And the data is simply unreliable when it comes to sexual assault. It is far more prevalent than anyone understands. Hockey is absolutely front and center because of the presence of hockey within the country and the number of kids who play hockey and the way that the hockey culture has us moving away from homes at an early age. But this is this is a societal issue, and that's not to downplay Hockey Canada and what we're dealing with now and the problem within hockey and the need for hockey culture to change and the need for Hockey Canada senior management to go. But this this isn't an, an issue. And in the U.S., when the Larry Nassar issue comes out, gymnastics is the, the focus. You're going to have uh, a major swim coach uh, go through something like this and you're all of a sudden going to find out, well, guess what? There's now a problem within swimming. And it, it's, it's, it's just going to roll over and until, uh, you know, things change and things are only going to change when people get educated and that's going to take generational improvement. And it's like, I I hate to not be as optimistic as so many people want to be in this field, but it's a problem. I'll uh, go to Teresa and then, then we'll, uh, we'll finish up with uh, Mac Ross. Yeah. Just a couple of points that kind of came out from Greg and Sandy. And I I agree with Greg a hundred percent. The data is definitely not, is underrepresentative of what we're seeing. And I think that's because of... We, we know that. We know exactly. that. Again, it's because of the culture of silence with respect to hockey, the culture of silence, you know, the 
response. You know, if I tell a coach and his first call is not to the police, why is anyone else going to report? So, so we know that's true. But I think what we saw um, now, what I'm hoping with this reckoning is there's another Me Too movement, right? Like Me Too really brought out of the woods a lot of women saying, hey, this is not okay. But also that was because there wasn't necessarily a language for what it meant to be, say, sexually assaulted as a woman, right? That, you know, putting your hand on my shoulder without my permission is not cool. And the same thing we're seeing with men and boys in hockey is these things are not cool, but they don't have a language for what to do. They don't have a means to say, you know what, please don't call me a fag in the dressing room just because I went to an art gallery. And sorry for my language, but this is unfiltered, right? So you you know what I mean? There isn't a language for otherwise. And then that comes back to the training. Like Sandy was mentioning, we need more gender-based violence training and not, you know, I love those respect and sport modules, but... I've been in the room where coaches have pushed play and then walked, right? And then come back and nah. yeah. Yeah. So and we also saw with the 2018 Hockey Canada incident that these men knew exactly what they were doing with respect to consent, right? right. They made a vid- had her um, you know, say on video, I'm sober. Are you okay with this? Are you okay with this? I'm okay with this. Exactly. So without having having consent training alongside healthy relationships training, ongoing, just like consent, you know, I think we're, again, cautious optimism. The one one thing I would say, and I agree with absolutely everything you're saying, hockey players aren't going to listen to consent trainers. They're going to listen to people like me. Yeah. 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 And uh, Mac, we'll finish off with you. There's one thing I just, I really hope doesn't get lost in all of this. And that's, um, so I, I primarily study uh, international sports events um, and sport at the, the national level. And yesterday um, or the day before, I'm getting them all jammed up in my head now. Um, it came out that that Sport Canada had, heard uh so they knew that this had happened but then there was another thing that kind of isn't getting the attention i think it deserves and that's they were asked uh you know do you monitor um whether or not your or not your but the the canadian sports federations more broadly are actually engaged uh with any kind of sexual assault reporting abuse supporting uh reporting and they said well yeah they're required to do that like yeah, but how do you? How are you tracking that? Like oh, we're not. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it's that's a massive problem, and if they don't fix that fundamental problem, that there is no way to stop uh, what's going on. Yeah. Well, that that uh, I think we can agree on uh, a lot of things, and and that's one of them for sure. Um, listen, everybody, I appreciate the conversation. Um, usually at this time of the year, I'm talking about free agents and where they're signing and goals and assists and how a team's going to do next season. And I certainly prefer that to this kind of discussion, but this is a discussion that we have to have. And I want to thank all of you for joining me for it and for for providing such great insight. Thank you, Teresa Fowler. Thank you, Sandy Kirby. Thank you, Greg Gilhooly and Mac Ross. Thank you very much. 
uh, for your time and your expertise. Yeah, thank you for having us. You're welcome. Great meeting everyone. Yeah. Thank you thank very you. much. Thank you.